that is feeling more distant, God is closer than you think. Good morning, Journey. My name is Mark. It's great to be with you. Well, as much as we can be together, that is. Uh, This is somewhat of an interesting Sunday. This morning, as we've already celebrated, it's Mother's Day. And so this morning, I have three things on my mind simultaneously. First, uh, my own mother, who I know is watching this, who above all else, I'm grateful for your love and your faith. I can quite honestly replace uh, your name, my name, and my grandma's name in 2 Timothy 1.5. This idea that my grandma has passed on the faith, my mom has passed on the faith, and it now lives in me. And so I brought my Bible that my parents gifted me back in 2008, my freshman year of high school. That's what I'm going to preach out of this morning. Secondly, I'm reminded of my friend Whitney, who is on our staff. And I told her I was preaching on silence and solitude. And she said, oh, great. The two things all moms crave. And I can only imagine in this time of COVID, that stress of not having silence and solitude has only increased. But Nevertheless, Whitney reminds me as I see her and little Dev around here, uh, just the joy of being a mom. And lastly, I'm reminded of Wanda Cooper-Jones, the mother of Ahmaud Arbery. Ahmaud was killed in February, and he would have celebrated his 26th birthday this last Friday. So this morning, there is cause for great celebration, and there is also cause for great and deep anger and sadness. Wanda Cooper Jones now joins a group of grieving black women, the Circle of Mothers, founded by Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin. Journey, I don't have words to guide us to lament, nor do I have words to guide us to action. Friends, I have words of challenge and love. Don't look away. We have to learn to listen. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction, Blessed are they who buried their loved ones for their tears could fill an ocean. Blessed are those who do not turn away from what is wrong in our world. Let's pray. God, thanks for this time and this space where we can uh, talk with you, not just about you. God, sometimes we don't have words in this extreme tension of great emotions, joy and sadness and anger. God, we trust you. God, I give you this time, would you speak through me? Anything I say that's not for you or from you, God, would we forget quickly? And God, would you bless our ears to hear from you this morning? We love you. Thanks that you love us. Amen. Come near to God 
and he will come near to you. James 4, 8. Ever since Easter, I've been thinking about this particular quote from a friend. Philip Yancey writes this. In many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus, Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means he must be loose out there somewhere. He must be loose out there somewhere, but where exactly is this God? Where is this God who descends from heaven and moves into the neighborhood of earth? Where is this God who descends even further still into death itself, but does not stay dead? He ascends upward and outward to new life. Where is this creator who chases down his creation? Last week, one of the things that we talked about was how God is attentive to us. Today, we're going to be talking largely about how to be attentive to an attentive God. I hope we discover two things. First, that solitude teaches us we're not alone. And second, that silence teaches us to hear from God. But first, I wanna talk about two oceans. The first is an invitation, and this other ocean is a warning. Ocean one, an expansive love and a wise fish. It seems there once were some fish who spent their days swimming around in search of water. Anxiously looking for their destination, they shared their worries and confusion with each other as they swam. One day, they met a wise fish and asked him the question that they had been preoccupied with for so long. Where is the sea? The wise fish answered, if you stop swimming so busily and struggling so anxiously, you would discover that you are already in the sea. You need look no further than where you already are. When I first heard this imaginative exercise by Carolyn Grattan, it reminded me immediately of Ephesians 3.18, that together we might grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of Christ is. And for Grattan, the search of these two fish were about finding the kingdom of God in life. Here's another way that I've heard it said. Our starting point should be that we are already here. We cannot attain the presence of God. We're totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. And so as we consider this first ocean, I wanna suggest that solitude teaches us that we're not alone. Practicing solitude then is about learning to swim in an ocean of love. This second ocean, the warning. Imagine for a second, if you would, it's pitch black and there's a thin layer of water that covers everything. And in the center, there's this swelling of noise, busyness and chaos back at Genesis before creation, before spirit creates and draws from this chaos. And as Jesus is born, many, 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 many years later and lives his life. This water swells and it's about up to his knees. And as time passes, this noise, this chaos keeps rising. And then we come on to the scene. And now this noise, this swelling is up to our chin. But just how loud is this swelling? Well, perhaps we look simply at our most basic place of interaction, conversation. A friend sent me an excerpt from a book that they're reading called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Listen to what author and MIT professor Sherry Turkle writes in her second chapter. It's a little bit long, but I think it's so accurate for our cultural moment. She says, 
Why a book on conversation? We're talking all the time. We text and post and chat. We may even begin to feel more at home in the world of our screen. Among family and friends, among colleagues and lovers, we turn to our phones instead of each other. We readily admit we would rather send an electronic message or mail than commit to a face-to-face meeting or a telephone call. This new mediated life has gotten us into trouble. Face-to-face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we develop the capacity for empathy. It's where we experience the joy of being heard and of being understood. And conversation advances self-reflection. The conversations with ourselves that are the cornerstone of early development and continue out throughout our life. But these days we find a way around conversation. We hide from each other even though we're constantly connected to one another. From on our screens, we are tempted to be present. Of course, performance is a part of any meeting, anywhere, but online at our leisure, it is easy to compose, edit, and improve as we revise. We say we turn to our phones when we're bored. And we often find ourselves bored because we have become accustomed to a constant feed of connection, information, and entertainment. I love this line. We are forever elsewhere, at class or at church or business meetings. We pay attention to what interests us. And then when it doesn't, we look to our devices to find something else that does. There's now a new word in the dictionary called fubbing. P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G. It means to maintain eye contact while texting. Turkle writes that her students tell her that they do this all the time and it's not hard. I love that one sentence. We are forever elsewhere. So how can we be here? Last year, I asked a professor if they would help me. After a Zoom call, it's a small class. They kind of tossed out there, hey, if you, if you need anything at all, just reach out. And so I emailed them and they graciously gave me their phone number. I called and I asked if they would teach me how to pray. This is what they said. They told me a story of a listening match with God, a story about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was being interviewed, you see, and they asked the question, what do you say when you pray? And she said, I listen. And you could tell that the interviewer was curious and kind of leans in And he asks her, well, what does God say? And she responds, he listens. And so I think it is that silence teaches us how to hear from God. So practicing silence is about learning to swim in an ocean of noise. Just how dangerous is distraction? This second ocean that is swelling up to our chin. Writer Andrew Sullivan, he wrote a provocative essay for the New York Times Magazine. Check out this title. I used to be a human being. The subtitle, an endless bombardment of news and gossip and images have rendered us manic information addicts. It broke me, it might break you too. Wow, what a title. Sullivan opens his essay by checking into a meditation center. He sets his iPhone in a basket for the whole time he's there And this is what his concluding remarks are in this essay. There are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. This new epidemic of distraction 
is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much as to our minds, even as they shapeshift under all of this pressure, but the threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. The threat is to our souls. I'm reminded of Mark 8, 36. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And so here's the question I wanna bring forward to us this morning. What do you get when you combine an epidemic of distraction and a global pandemic? What happens when the distractions in our lives are stripped away because our inner lives are being exposed? When we realize just how high the water is and we can't swim? I think a lot of us numb. Alcohol or sugar, we eat. We overwork and we won't call it workaholism. We binge on Netflix or we find other ways to retreat into fantasy because we find it to be better than reality. Perhaps we search the internet to consume and the use of other people for those quick moments of a brief high. There are a whole slew of ways in which we as humans numb. I love how the song Modern Loneliness captures this numbing in two lines. Modern loneliness. We love to get high, but we don't know how to come down. Friends, we are up to our chin with the swelling of noise and distractions. We're often scared to meet with a God who longs to draw close to us. And yet, we are deeply lonely. We're scared to sit in solitude and silence with God because we don't wanna have to sift through the ashes of our lives, as one of my friends put it. Henry Nouwen says it this way. When we enter into communion or silence and solitude with God, We have to face our demons. As long as we are busy and distracted, we never have to deal with who we are. So this morning, let's look at Jesus who shows us the way, who goes first in embracing what I think might become the very gift we need in such a time as this. Luke chapter five, verses 12 through 16. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered the man, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet, the news spread about all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. Verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now there's a lot of observations we can make about just this small story. Perhaps we should look at two characters, this lonely wounded leper man and Jesus. And it might be easy for us, perhaps you've heard this story before, to know that in this social setting, that this leper man was not accepted in his society. And even so, as we think about social distancing and COVID-19, we might even begin to imagine more so what it might have been like to be this man. But can you imagine if it was just you? Can you imagine if it was just you when people put masks on their face? No one else. Can you imagine if it was just you who people stayed six feet away from in social distancing. It was just you that couldn't go into coffee shops, the church, a gym, or a restaurant. 
It was just you that couldn't be around their friends or their family. That is the reality of the systemic prejudice that this man is facing. It's just you that the world would look normal to, but everyone would look down upon you from a distance and with disgust. And very quickly, two lies start to form in this man's head and heart, I imagine. One lie, that this disease is now who he is. It is his identity. And the second lie, that he is the problem. And what about Jesus, the second character in the story? Immediately, Jesus tells the truth. This disease is not this man's identity. In fact, he says these beautiful words, be clean. And then we begin to wonder, no wonder that Jesus makes this order, this command in verse 14, not to tell anyone. Word would travel fast here in a place just like Bozeman. Can you imagine then? How about the Pharisees? How would they react? What about the Sadducees? What about the Romans? It's not a question of if they find out. It's a matter of when. And because Jesus knew his identity as the son of God, he knew his calling as the Messiah, and he knew that this kingdom that he was bringing, how it would clash and come into conflict with the powers that be religion, how it would draw out the evilness of human sin to its very core, that it would draw this desire of deicide to murder God. No wonder that Jesus withdrew to a lonely place of silence and solitude. Can you imagine all of the noise, the voices of his disciples wanting him to overthrow Rome, the voices of the crowd seeking help, the voices and the accusations of the religious leaders. Jesus desperately needed the lonely place. Not just in this moment either. If you read through the gospels, we see Jesus likes to do two things, eat with his friends and invite everyone and go alone to be in silence and solitude. And so perhaps this gift of the lonely place is the gift that we need right now. Again, this idea that solitude really does teach us that we're not alone and that silence teaches us how to hear from God. What happens in this place of solitude? In solitude and in a combination with silence, we learn to hear the one voice that really matters. John Ortenberg says, the primary place Jesus drew his power to achieve his calling was in solitude. But what was this voice and what does it say? In Matthew 3, 17, the voice that Jesus heard, the same voice that we need to hear, it's the voice that says to us, you are beloved. It's the voice of belovedness that comes to us in solitude. And it's here in the lonely place where we also gain freedom from the many voices. Think about Jesus's life for a moment. Who was it in Jesus's life that he didn't ultimately disappoint? He disappointed his family, his disciples, the religious leaders, the crowds who yelled Hosanna, but then in the same breath yelled, crucify him. We learn from the life of Jesus that if we want to embrace who it is that God has made us to be, to love people, to serve people, to help people, that we must be free from people. We must be free from their criticism and free from their praise. And yet this is difficult for most of us. We've talked about what we are often afraid of, but let's lean in a little bit more. Teresa of Avila can help us see some of this inner tension. She gives us hints that to become more aware of the beauty of God will also make us more aware of our own brokenness. She describes that the more she became aware of God, the more she became aware of herself. This rhythm became her life. 
an increasing awareness of self and an increasing awareness of who God was. And to me, there's this strange comfort when I think about learning and embracing the ways that fellow pilgrims have gone before us. Every night, St. Francis of Assisi would pray, God, who are you and who am I? I asked Brandon if he would sing this song, My Portion, for us. And now I know that it does not miss me that engaging with art and song is different through this medium because we're not together in a room. But my hope is that as we pray alongside Francis of Assisi, God, who are you and who am I, that this song might give us some language and a picture to answer this question.
my portion. You're my portion. When I lay down my life, you're my portion. You're my portion. You are my portion. You're my portion. When I lay down my life, you're my portion. You're my As Teresa of Avila drew near God, at first, before she became aware of the voice of belovedness, she became aware of her own brokenness. Who is God? God is yours, mine, and our portion. Most commonly, this word can be traced to the Hebrew idea of inheritance, although it carries a deep meaning of substance. Who is God? God himself is our allotment. His presence is our reward. I tried to craft some questions and some resources to be helpful Monday through Saturday this week, but I'd really like to end our time with a prayer I wrote, a prayer of longing. I long to be with you, not talking about God to you, but talking with God and with you. I long to name evil for what it is. I long for good to overcome evil. 
I long for healing as Jesus deals with the evil in us and in our world. I long for racism and white privilege to be denounced for what they are. I long to have the courage to look at the injustice in our world and mourn. For I take Jesus at his word when he says that those who mourn will be comforted. I long for us to no longer be desensitized and distracted by technology where we might endlessly scroll through murder, economics, viruses, memes, and Instagram stories all in the same way. I long to see the little ones of our church family again, to hear Peggy and Teresa and the rest of the base camp team welcome each and every child. I long for one, just one of our middle school students to break a rule on a Tuesday night or try to sneak an extra chocolate chip cookie. I long for those pity laughs that our high school students would give their 27-year-old youth pastor for his bad jokes and for the real talk that we would always have late into the night. I long to serve, sit, and eat dinner with my team of faithful friends and our most amazing middle school and high school students. I long to live in the power of the Spirit of God. I long to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who has gone before me. I long for solitude to teach me that I indeed am not alone. I long for silence to teach me how to hear God's voice. I long for us to know each other and to be known by one another. I long for us to know a God who is love. I long for us to be known by this God. I long for us to sit in deep friendship with God. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.